Alrighty, guys. No, man, I got it. I'm an old, strong man. You know, I can lug this 175 pound. I'm kidding. It's like 15 pounds. Um, all right, church, how are we doing? Who's thankful? Thankful to be in God's presence tonight? It's good when you go to church and God's at church, you know? It's lame to go to church and God's not there. You're like, what are we doing? This is, this is boring. You know, that the, in, in the New Testament, part of why Swayze was explaining, we, we have this thing called the blueprint, which is sort of our like, you know, not sort of, it, it is what we build off of, right? Every house is built off of a blueprint. And in the New Testament, we see that the church is not, uh, it's not an institution, it's not a club, it is not a religious system. It is, the New Testament calls it a, the household of God. Who lives in a household? Yeah, yeah, this is a church where you can like yell at me, you can talk, I'm gonna ask questions, they're not rhetorical, right? Who lives in a household? Family, right? And so if the church, according to the writers of the New Testament, said that the church is the household of God, then you should expect, number one, to find who there? God, right? And if it's a household, you should expect to walk in there and feel like family, all right? And so just so you know, that's why we have the blueprint. The blueprint is the word of God. Look, we're not coming up with anything new. It's all been here for centuries, and we're saying, God, would you help us to build? Ultimately, this is the, the blueprint. It's already been given to us. Will you help us build a house, number one, where you want to hang out and where it feels like family in the kingdom, and so if you are new here and this is your first time, so glad you're here. Sorry, we had some chair challenges this week, all right? But uh, so f forgive us and thank you for just being gracious and working through all that. Um, we want you here. There will be more chairs next week, I promise, all right? Sorry about that. Uh, my, my name's Chris Pletcher, and I have the privilege of serving this house uh, as our lead pastor, um, and we're just excited. It's been a fun new year. Who's thankful for 2022? Can't believe we're already coming to like March here in, in you know, 10 days or something, but, um, but it's been a fun new year. And tonight we are in part five, this series called First Love Fire. We're just studying through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're just taking it chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, and we are in part five, which puts us kind of at the end of Ephesians 2, going into Ephesians chapter three tonight. And I wanna just give some quick vision. First Love Fire, the title comes from the book of Revelation where Jesus, through the apostle John, is, is telling him to send letters to all the different churches. And he addresses the Ephesian church and says, look, you guys, in all these letters in Revelation, he, he commends them and he corrects them. He says, hey, because he's a good father, right? That's what good fathers should do. Hey, here's where you're on. This is what you're doing well. Here's where we need to grow. And to the Ephesian church, he says, look, you guys have endured some stuff. You guys are um, clinging to the truth. You can say amen. These are good things. Like this church is getting commended for their patience, how they don't tolerate false doctrine. They're clinging to God's words. Like the Ephesian church was a solid church. And so we're like, okay, well, we want to be like that. We want to be enduring through difficulty. We want to be clinging to the truth, right? But the one thing that he corrected them for was that they had drifted from or fallen from their first love, right? 
And if you've ever been in a relationship, okay, married couples, dating couples, this is, this is normal in relationships on the earth as it is with the, with the God of the universe. When you first come in to relationship with God through the gospel, which is a lot of what the first four parts of this series were about, it's just the gospel, there's like this new breath in your lungs. Y'all were here for baptisms a few weeks ago? We, we dunked like 13 people in this huge feeding trough right here, and it was rowdy. It was like entire families got baptized. I mean, it was powerful. You know, the gospel brings new life into our bones, right? We get reconciled to God. It's like for some of us, we feel peace for the first time in our lives. We discover what we were created for, and it's like we come out of the gates from death to new life, and we're just like, we're in love. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you love loved me. Like, this is amazing. You know what I'm talking about? I hope you've had that, like at least a taste of that experience before. If not, you might need to get saved, okay? Because it's really, really good. The gospel is good news. And this, this gospel of our salvation, of his love, his grace, it's, it is good news. And so we come in and there's this first love. But over time, it's not all roses walking with Jesus on planet earth, and it's hard, and we do have to endure, and we do have to press through a bunch of junk, and we get hurt in a thousand different ways along the journey, and something in our first love can sort of start to die down. And, and so then we just start, you know, going to church like out of duty, you know, or, or you know, occasionally maybe like trying to pursue or seek God, but it's kind of more out of like, well, I'm in this thing, you know, and, and we get kind of stale. Can we be honest for a minute? We sometimes get stale in our devotion to the Lord. And so he's rebuking the Ephesian church saying, hey, you've forgotten your first love. And we're saying, okay, Lord, it, like, if, if that's been us in any way through this past season, lead us back to a first love fire where we are passionately, excitedly uh, running after the Lord with devotion. And so as we come into the next part of the series tonight, I gotta set the stage and I'm gonna ask you guys a question and see if any of y'all can, can get my little trivia here out of the gate, okay? I'm not trying to be cool or funny. It actually has a purpose for where the message is going, okay? So these three things I'm about to mention, what do these three things have in common, okay? Nike tennis shoes, your phone case, and your Instagram profile, okay? Huh? Oh, things go in there. Okay, that's not a bad guess. Thank you for participating in this participatory church. Um, not, not quite it. Nike shoes, your phone case, and your Instagram profile. They look good. They look good? I don't know who that was, but can, oh, was that Phil? Dude, can we? Oh, man, Phil. They, they look good. Yes, they look good. Thank you, Phil, for that perfect segue, because... With the, a few clicks of a button, you can go on the internet, right? And you can completely customize, personalize, individualize your style, your gear, and your profile. You know what I mean? You just, a, a few clicks here and there, and you can totally personalize your identity through the world, right? By the shoes you wear, your cool phone case, and what you let people see on Instagram, right? That's what they have in common. And, you know, we live in a world 
of limitless individuality. You know what I'm talking about? And I believe some of this is okay because you know you've been made in the image of God. You are uniquely beautiful, okay? But I think that deep down inside, because we don't really fully believe that, we spend so much of our time trying to convince everybody else that we're uniquely beautiful. You know what I'm saying? But look, the individuality is good. God made you. You're uniquely made in his image. You are beautiful, right? But our American emphasis on individuality, that if you were born in this country at any point in the last 40 years, 30 years at least, you were born into this American individualism. It has taken us outside of the kingdom of God. It has pushed us outside of God's design for our lives. There's a term Y'all heard of this term before, rugged individualism. Raise your hand if you've heard that term. It was first used at the end of the 1800s, but it was made really popular by a president in the 1920s named Herbert Hoover, all right? And this term highlights some, we're gonna look at a definition of it. It highlights some healthy components of like personal responsibility and hard work and stuff, but it takes us out of the kingdom. Look at here, it says, rugged individualism is the practice or advocacy of individualism in social and economic relations, emphasizing, check this out, personal independence, self-reliance, resourcefulness, and self-direction. Okay, you see, personal self-self. Say, me, 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 me. Rugged individualism is I got all I need right in here. I can do it all. Now, there, there's a part of that that is healthy, where we do take personal responsibility for the lives God has given us, right? We don't lay around all that day long and expect somebody else to take care of us. But do you see the emphasis on self-reliance, self-direction, self sufficiency. I believe that it puts us outside of God's kingdom if we completely, in which most of us growing up in America, whether we know it or not, this is in us. This is in us. But here's the deal. This might be quotable. I'm not like the best writer in the world, but this might be quotable, okay? No matter how hard we try to find ourselves in ourselves, we will always gravitate back towards a community because we were made in the image of a triune God who lives in a family, lives in community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You were made in the image of a God who lives in relationship. We call it the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so no matter how hard you might try to find yourself in yourself, you actually can only find yourself because of how God created you within the context of community. You cannot fully find who you are on your own. You can only discover who God has made you to be in the context of community relationship. And I'll prove it to you. I went on a jog yesterday morning at Crestwood Regional Park, Saturday morning. I'm just trying to go get, you know, catch a fresh breath and, and clear my head a little bit. I knew I was preaching on individualism, this thing. I had this, you know, my, my intro was kind of halfway finished. And I come into Crestwood Regional Park to go on my jog yesterday. And the first thing I see is 
um, if I'm smiling, it's not, there's not judgment. It's just new. It was like, and, and just give me, give me a break because you probably would smile too, okay? But I saw about 15 people dressed in Renaissance role play attire, um, hanging out at the park together on Saturday morning. And they, you know, it's like, okay, wow, I was not expecting, like 15 people, it's like Saturday morning, you know, and a couple of them had swords, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, like, so here we are, you know, I'm like, okay. The context of this is no matter how hard we want to try to find ourselves as individuals, we'll always join a club, okay? We'll always gravitate toward a club where no matter how individual we try to be, we'll find other people that can help us tell us who we are, right? It didn't stop there. So I go on the jog and I'm halfway around the trail and no lie, I come up on a caravan, for literally as far as I could see in the distance on the trail, a caravan of dog walkers. Okay, now look, this wasn't like some friends walking their dog together in the park, okay? That's like within the, norm, the realm of like normality, okay? This was no less than 30, maybe 40 people in a single file line walking their dogs in a caravan in the park, okay? Now, dog walking might be the most widely accepted individual activity on the planet, but even the dog walkers want a club where they can walk their dogs with other dog walkers, you know, like... Thank you, God, for finishing this illustration for me. We gravitate towards community because we're made for it. No matter how individual we try to customize ourselves, we will get lost in ourselves. And that's why Jesus, when he saves us, he doesn't save us unto ourselves. He saves us, look around the room, into his church. He saves us into a family. He saves us into a body. This is the gospel. As much as it is about you, it's not about you at all. As much as it was about saving you from sin, death, and hell, and redeeming you from your past, that wasn't just so that you could be redeemed forever. It's so that you could be a part of his family and his body and what he's doing through his family on the earth. Check it out, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. We're gonna get to Ephesians 2, I promise, okay? <clears throat> you guys happy to be at church in Salt Lake City on a Sunday evening? It's, it's a fun place to be with the people of God. It says this, just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, doesn't matter where you came from, American, European, African, wherever you came from, we were all baptized into one body made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many members. As we come into Ephesians 2 and this part five of this series, what I want us to see tonight is how the nature of the kingdom of God it has very little room for rugged individualism, which means as Americans that have grown up steeped in a mentality that actually doesn't just give us permission to make our lives all about ourselves, but encourages us to make our lives all about ourselves, to customize our shoes and our phones and this and that, that we have to actually, if we're gonna be citizens of a heavenly mindset, are you with me, of a heavenly 
kingdom, then that means we're gonna have to break with some of our earthly citizenship mindsets that we've picked up along the way. The kingdom of God, there's not a whole lot of room for rugged individualism. It is a place of interdependence and interconnectedness within a body, right? I mean, my hand severed and disconnected from the rest of me would do would serve no purpose but to gross all of us out you know you know like it just doesn't it doesn't work the kingdom of god's not built that way so let's go to the end of ephesians 2 and into ephesians 3 check this out it says this so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God. Notice the plural language here, right? He's not writing to you, he's writing to us. We're fellow citizens. We're members of a household. This household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the word of God, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, somebody say together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together, somebody say together, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Church, I know if you've been here for the last six months, I hope you've heard me say this at least 10 times. If not, I need to do a better job. Verse 22 is probably the, if I had to pick one verse to hang the entire vision of this church in Salt Lake City upon, it would be Ephesians 2.22, that we would come together and be built together in a way that we become a dwelling place, which is just another word for saying a house, where God wants to live. So that when people visit Antioch Salt Lake, they don't meet me, they don't meet Swayze, they don't meet our awesome welcome team, although they are awesome, they don't meet our awesome worship team, although these guys are awesome. When people come to check out Antioch Salt Lake, they meet God. We're not doing religion, we're not trying to do cute vision, we're saying we want to be a biblical house where God wants to hang out. Because when we meet him, Anything is possible and everything can change. So we're being built together. And this is critical for us to understand because again, so far in Ephesians, as we've just been hanging out and he's just talking about the gospel in these first few chapters, some of it we can take on like pretty individually. Like it's like about my salvation and it's about how I got adopted by God and how I went from death to life. And so I want you to understand something macro level about the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters and under the divine direction of the Holy Spirit, this letter to this church, and however the, the, the guys that canonized the scripture, however they decided to divide it between chapter three and four, this book, from a macro level, is perfectly divided. Chapter one through three is all about identity, and chapters four through six is all about instruction. Say identity and instruction. Literally, I double-checked so that I could say this confidently before you, but in the first three chapters of Ephesians, you will not find a single command or a single directive. He doesn't ask you to do anything. 
He spends three chapters exalting the gospel, praising God for his grace, telling us all about the nature of going from death to life, and then celebrating the wisdom of God and founding the church on the earth. Literally, first three chapters, there's one sentence at the end of chapter three where he asks them to not lose heart. Literally, literally, first three chapters, go test me on this. Maybe you'll find something I didn't see. There's not a single command because the one through three is all about what, church? Identity. Four through six, we're gonna turn the corner next week. Oh, you can't get through one verse without finding some instruction, okay? But here's the beauty of the divine direction of the Holy Spirit writing this letter. Check it out. If you don't know what the gospel has done for you and in you, you will never be able to obey what the gospel asks of you. We have to know who we are in the grace of God, and we have to experience a true rebirth from death to life. It is the miracle of salvation. That's what makes this a supernatural endeavor of being born again. This, that's what makes us not religious, because religion says you've got to try to be a better person with all the same broken hardware you've had your whole life. Just try harder, be better. Religion cannot ever work, no matter what variety it comes in, because all it can set you off to do is try to spin your wheels through self-improvement, whereas the gospel says, no, 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 no. You are so much more dead in and of yourself than you think you are. You just need to realize and die on that cross with Jesus and then be born again, get new hardware. This is the gospel. Look, the gospel is your heart is so dead and sick apart from God, you have no hope of ever being one ounce better in and of yourself. And so you come to a point of desperation where you realize how despicable you are in and of yourself and you call on the name of Jesus. You say, Jesus, save me, rescue me. I believe you died on the cross to forgive me so that I could get a new heart and start a new life and have a new walk. And if it's a miracle that happens. This isn't some fringe theology. This is the core doctrine of the new covenant. I mean, think about how, sorry, this isn't in my notes. Think about how much bigger the Old Testament is and it didn't work because they didn't get new hardware, okay? And how thin the little New Testament is and it's full of glory because we get born again and we can actually walk with God. So if we don't understand back to identity, we don't understand the gospel and what it does in us and for us, we'll never be able to respond to these next few chapters of instruction where he calls us to live as these people of a different kingdom. Identity always comes before instruction. But this identity in this book, it's crazy. If you've, if you've been tracking, throw that slide up there about our identity, who we are in him. Look, at this is a little sloppy. Sorry, I'll take credit for that. You go, just in these first two, two chapters, you go from an orphan to being adopted. That's who you are if you believe in Jesus. You're an adopted child of God. You go from death to life. Chapter two, you go from son of disobedience to a beloved son or daughter of the father. You go from being a separated, this was Hallie's message last week, okay? Come on, Hallie Yancey, preaching last week. You go, check this out. You go from separated, alienated, and estranged from God to a fellow citizen and a member of his family. 
You go from no hope, that's supposed to have an in there, sorry, not oh hope, all right. You got no hope, I'm just pulling this like straight up out of the text, go, go study it. No hope to full access to God. You go from far off to brought near by the blood. That's what we were singing that song earlier in worship. Man, it's all by the blood. We get a complete identity overhaul. And it's an identity that's not meant to just be about us, though. It's an identity that's meant to connect us with this redeemed community. And I want you to see it. We're going to go a little bit further. So there's identity, there's interdependence, and there's intention. So if you're a note taker and you like pastors that alliterate, there you go. Okay, there's our identity in God, all right? But it's not just about us. It's actually to position us into an interdependence with the body. And then there's a great intention or purpose through what he saved you to be a part of because he's got a plan for it in the earth. You will grow spiritually so much more rapidly if you will understand that your great purpose in life, sometimes we say your great destiny in life, actually it's, it's just like our pursuit of the individualism. If you try to find your purpose and identity just within yourself, you will, be, you will be frustrated and you will be lost. But when you come in connected to the body and you begin to explore your identity and your purpose as a believer within this, you start to discover it, right? And that's why when this church thing is healthy and when it's beautiful, something in us gets answered, are you with me? It's like when this thing is right, it's like, it's beautiful. And we get these, it's it's like something makes sense, right? And when it's not, when there's pain and dysfunction and just bad leadership or whatever, right? It's so painful. And we end up just feeling lost. Guys, it's because we were made for this. We were made for it, made for it. Check it out. Let's go into the interdependence, 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Isn't God's word fun? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body, right? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, check it out, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Look, if you're a believer and you're trying to find your purpose of life and you're not connected to the body, you will get nowhere. You will be frustrated, okay? Because, because you, as a believer, whether you're connected with the body or not, it's what God has made you to be a part of. And so you're like the hand flopping on the floor being like, okay, I know I'm supposed to do something here, but it doesn't really make sense when I'm laying here by myself, right? Because you were, you were built to be connected. And that is why one of our other blueprint core values in this church is togetherness, okay? Y'all wanna read this one with me too? It says this, we regularly gather to seek God as a family. Revival is never about what we can accomplish as individuals. It's about what God can do through us when we are together. When we are rightly functioning as a community, as a body, I want to show you what can happen? Pick it up with me in chapter three of Ephesians, okay? This is where he's leading us in this letter. He's like, look, don't, don't get through Ephesians one and two and think that this is all about you getting saved. 
And that's where it starts. But it is about some, so much bigger than you, okay? Check this out. It says this, chapter three, verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus on behalf of you, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written. Written briefly, sorry. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I'm gonna unpack this a little in a second. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same, what? Body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's saying, look, he said, we're in a new season here. Something is new that the Old Testament, for all that it revealed to us about the nature and character of God, we're in new territory here. Stuff that has not been previously revealed was being revealed through Paul and the other apostles to the early church. And it was about this coming together of one new body in Jesus. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, African, American, European, man, woman, child, old. God was doing something about bringing it into one body. And he goes on, and he says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This is verse seven, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Hang with me. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan. Somebody say plan. The plan of the mystery hidden for ages who created all things. Okay, okay, this is like drum roll. He's about to tell us. Someone give me a drum roll. He's about to tell us about a plan that was hidden for ages. Come on, you're like, oh my gosh, really? God's saying, he's about to reveal the mystery that had been hidden for generations? What's this plan, God? Bring the cat out of the bag. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities on the earth. Is that what it says? No, I misquoted the end. Where? In the heavenly places. Listen to me. Listen to me. I hope that drum roll didn't fall flat on you because what he is saying is the whole purpose of this mystery that's being revealed in Jesus that everyone through the blood of Christ can enter in and become a part of his body is that God is making a new family on the earth called the household of God, right? You show up to a house, who should be there? The owner of the house, God's house on the earth with his redeemed sons and daughters. And if we get this right, church. The manifold wisdom of God, somebody say now, will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Look, I'm yelling because I'm fired up. I'm not yelling just because I'm trying to get you excited. This is beautiful stuff, okay? Look, if we get this right, church, we declare to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That's talking about the spiritual realm. If you don't know, I think all of us living in Salt Lake City know that there is another realm, okay? It's, it's actually everywhere. But you come to Salt Lake City and you, it, you can feel it a little bit more acutely maybe than in other places. It's like, look, it's not just everything meets the eyes. 
okay? There is an unseen level, okay? The, the scripture, he talks about it quite a bit in Ephesians, the heavenly places. There is unseen spiritual activity, church, happening around us all the time. And if that freaks you out or weirds you out, just, I'm not, I'm not saying this to condemn you or correct you. I'm, I'm, please hear my heart. If that freaks you out, spend a little bit more time reading the gospels in the Bible because there was demonic, weird, unseen spiritual activity happening everywhere Jesus went, okay? And if we're gonna be a church, okay, that's pressing in to see the kingdom of light and the household of God established in a place on the earth, then the only way we're gonna establish a place of light is if we're pushing out some darkness, okay? And so you might not be comfortable with that. Maybe you're newer to church. You're like, well, this guy's talking about angels, demons, things I can't see. Look, if you're not comfortable with it, spend a little bit more time reading about Jesus' life. It was all around. It was all around. We don't talk about it all the time. Not here in America, at least, okay? You go to Cambodia, <laughs> you can't get off the plane. And you're like, oh, demons are real, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> Like in third world, different places. That one's for you, Murray. All right. Hey, but it ain't no different here. So, what he's saying is, we church, we are in a very real tension, a tug of war, a battle between darkness and light. Look, you felt it your whole life. Okay, you've been stuck in the middle of it your whole life. You feel the pull. You feel the temptation. You feel the pull into what mentally you know is not good, but you still want to do anyways. That's why the gospel is a miracle that changes your desires on the inside. This was the coolest thing. I came to Jesus when I was a freshman in college. If you haven't heard my story before, literally out of the frat house, pitchers of beer one weekend to walked away from it all because I had an encounter with Jesus in my dorm room and I was like, this is real and it deserves my whole life. I dropped out of my fraternity. This was about 20 years ago and I've been following Jesus ever since, not perfectly, but submittedly. And, and so, what was I saying about that? <laughs> Keep going. Spiritual realm. So I, so I get saved, and oh man, I lost myself in my own story. <laughs> Stick to the notes, bro. Um, so I, I come into this place where I began to realize that there was, um, oh, here's where I was going. Okay, thank you, Holy Spirit. I tried for years to make myself better. I was aware of the things in my life that were not good or that needed to be changed. And I tried, okay, I should probably do this. I should probably cuss less. I should probably drink less. I should probably do this, this, and that. And I spun my wheels on religion. When I finally hit my knees and surrendered my life to Jesus and got born again, the craziest thing started to happen. I began to notice that inside of my heart, I actually wanted to do the right thing. <laughs> Oh, that's the miracle of salvation. I actually wanted to please God. That was the coolest moment for me, eye-opening. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not just white-knuckling anymore trying to not do the wrong thing. Like, I actually want to please God now. Now, there's still temptation. There were still things that I had to get set free of. But are you with me? That was a miracle. And that's why uh, the beauty of, of the gospel we live in this tension between darkness and light. Stay with me, okay? I'm, I'm way off the notes here, all right? But look, we live in this tension. It's all around us, okay? And it's, it matters. 
what God, his intention, guys, let's just say it one more time. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Do you see God's intention for the church? Do you understand what he's trying to say? This thing is so much more important than we even know it is. Us getting this right is so much of a bigger deal than we think it is. Do you see, can you see for a minute how this is, has nothing to do with your preferences? Whether you like our worship style or not. This has nothing to do with like, it just doesn't have to do with all the stuff we've made church about. It has to do with when we get this right, something happens where the wisdom of God is proclaimed to the realm around us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's why, back to the first love fire in the book of Revelation and the letters to the churches, it's why Jesus showed up to John in such a powerful and startling vision and said, John, I've got something to say to my church and I need you to listen. And John starts writing. And I'm gonna pull you into Revelation here in a minute and then we're gonna close just in a second. But he starts writing and he writes seven letters to seven different churches in the region at the time. And the letters all follow the same format. And I wanna walk you through the format here just kind of briefly. But Jesus says, John, I've got something to say to my church. Listen, get a pen, bro. They all start the same way. The word of Christ, literally, he opens his mouth and he speaks. Bible says the word of God is sharp as a two-edged sword, that it pierces, it divides us down to bone and marrow. And the word of Christ comes to pierce and to do two things, okay? To commend and to judge. That's what he is separating The word of God always comes to establish what should be and to invite us to cut away what should not. And the word of Christ comes to all seven of these churches, that's how it starts. The word of Christ comes. And in each letter, the first things that comes out, the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth, this is so beautiful. Two words, I know. To all seven churches, the first two words that come out, I know. Why? Because Jesus knows and sees everything. Hebrews says that our hearts are open and laid bare before the God to whom all of us will give an account. Look, you might think you're doing a pretty good job hiding whatever you're hiding. Look, your heart is open and laid bare before God. Okay, and sometimes in our churches, okay, we think we're hiding things or da da da. God knows, he says, I know. I know exactly what's going on in your church. And I know exactly what's going on in your home. And I know exactly what's going on in your life. And the word of God comes sharp. It's supposed to be sharp. Because it's supposed to divide the things of God from the things that are not of God. And it comes. And he says, I know. And then he does four things, okay? He commends, corrects, calls, and promises. He commends them for their obedience. Remember, I talked about this with Ephesians. Hey, you guys are enduring. You're being patient. You're enduring evil. You're clinging to the truth. You're getting rid of, you know, of of this stuff from your midst, you know. He commends them, and then he corrects them. He says, but 
You're drifting from the love you had at first. Commends, corrects, and then he calls them to repent. In the case of the Ephesians, he says, hey, do the things you did at first. Return to where you were at first. Some of you met God in college like me. And man, you were just, oh, you were so in love with Jesus. You do this, this, and that. And then life goes on. A few hard seasons go by and you're kind of scraping by and you're like, wow, what happened to my awesome relationship with God I had a long time ago? You're just an Ephesian, you know? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. He's not trying to throw shame on you. He's trying to set you free. If you have ears to hear it, if you want to have an offendable heart and get offended by everything he says, then you can harden your heart and walk away from him. That's the other option we see all through scripture. Or you can say, wow, Jesus is correcting me because he loves me. And so I'm going to repent. And then he promises a reward to, it's, it's interesting that he's writing letters to churches. Here's what I want you to hear, then we're going to respond. He's writing letters to a body. He didn't write it to the leader of the church. He didn't write it to some individual in the church. He's writing it to the body. He commends them. Do you remember what they were? He commends them. He corrects them. He calls them the repentance. But then he promises a reward. Check this out. On an individual basis. Go read the letters. He says he's writing to a church, but when he gets the reward at the end, it says to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. He's addressing a body, but here's what you need to know. It is up to you to respond to the word of the Lord. It is on you as an individual. We can preach it, we can share it, we can invite all day long. It is up to you if the sword of God's spirit that says coming out of the mouth of Jesus, his word, is piercing something in you, we can't make you obey. That's actually manipulation. It has no place in God's house. It is up to you, to the one. But there's a promise every time you respond and repent to God's correction. There's a promise in all of these letters. And so I want us to stand as we close. Band, you guys come up here today. And here's what I want us to see. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is writing letters to who? He's writing to churches, right? He is writing to churches. And here's the truth. All of these churches, if you read through the seven different letters that he has John write, okay, all of them are a mixed bag of success and compromise. Because where God is moving, Satan is always meddling. In each of these seven churches, they are a mixed bag of there's some beautiful redemptive activity happening, and then there's some stuff where Satan has been able to come in and wreak some havoc. And that's why Jesus is saying, John, get your pen ready. I'm about to give my church an opportunity to get right with me, right? He's not sending these letters in judgment. He's sending these letters in love. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, okay? Now, if we don't respond, then sometimes the judgment comes later. That seems to be the pattern of scripture. The kindness of God invites repentance on a community or on an individual. And if we ignore his kindness, he will sometimes come in severity, in discipline, and that's not, if, the, if that's a, a place of fear, well, then that's a healthy fear that we find through all of Scripture, actually. It's the fear of God. 
His sword is sharp because it's sharp. You know what I'm saying? And so here's how I feel like um, we're supposed to respond tonight. I think there's maybe two opportunities for us. I talked about this rugged American individualism. If, if, if the sword is hitting you and you realize, oh man, yeah, like I've really just kind of built my life around myself. And, and you're like, oh man, I wanna encourage you today because God loves you to let that sword hit your individualism and cut it off. And for you to realize you were born to be in a community. And this is connected with the second one. It's been really easy in the last couple of years to bash the church because it's been a really hard couple of years and no church has done it well. And what we've done is instead of getting excited about Paul's drum roll and understanding the beauty of what God's intention is for his body, we've stood on the sidelines because we were hurt or disappointed by the body and we started bashing the church instead of fighting to see her as beautiful as she's supposed to be. And so I love all of you. A lot of you I haven't even met yet, okay? But if we're gonna be a family and we're gonna be a house where God himself wants to come hang out, we're not gonna be a house that bashes the church. And look, I'll tell you, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not gonna lead this thing perfectly, okay? I'm not, I'm not infallible, but I got men and counsel around me and we got people and a good-hearted people around this body and I'm not doing this thing on my own. I'm not going to lead this perfectly. But so there's going to be things that happen where you don't always agree. We can agree, disagree and still honor. And we're not going to be a people that bashes the church, whether it's this one or somewhere else. I'll just say, look, that ain't welcome in a house where we're trying to get God to come be present or we're bashing his bride. You think God wants to come into a room where we're throwing stones at his bride? No. You think God wants to come and dwell in a house where we're critiquing everything they hung on the wall or if we like the lights or the style? Nah, (laughs) we're not gonna do that. And I'm really not, I just wanna be clear. I don't feel like I'm hearing a lot of that. I'm just, this is what I feel like the scripture's like. I'm like, look, we're not gonna bash the church and we're not gonna align ourselves with like this individual ideal thing that we've all picked up in America because because here's why, because God won't dwell in a house where that stuff's all going on, right? And that's Ephesians 2, Like, we're trying to build this thing. It's not about you. It's not about me. This is bigger than all of us. It's more beautiful than all of us. It's more important than your preferences, right? It's more important than my preferences. You know who gets all of his preferences? The owner of the house. It ain't your house. It ain't my house. It's the house of God. And we're gonna do the best to step aside and say, Lord, what do you want? Do you like these light bulbs? I promise you, church, if God told our team he didn't like these light bulbs, I'd take them down. I would. I like these light bulbs. It's not my house. (laughs) So Lord, we just come to you and we say it's your kindness that leads us to repent. 
Can we get a few of our pastoral leadership team and life group leaders, if you would, just kind of over on the wings. And if you want to talk to somebody or prayer, we always want to have availability, the opportunity for you to get prayed for. Let's have a few folks kind of come up here. But we say thank you. It's your kindness, Lord. And look, I really want to just reemphasize, there's, there's not condemnation here today, Lord. This is beautiful. Your design for your body is beautiful. Your, your intention for your body, your church on the earth, it is so much higher, Lord. We say, Lift our eyes, Lord. Elevate our thinking, God. Redeem the places where we've been hurt, where church has let us down, where church has been painful, Lord. Redeem those places, God, and pull us into the kind intention of your will and your plan and your purpose, and that's to build something beautiful with the kingdom family on the earth where Jesus is at the middle, where his grace rules and reigns, where his gospel is moving and all things are being made new lord that's we pray so we're just going to worship and you respond however you need to respond to the lord if you want to come pray with some of these folks feel free but we just say god i just want to pray lord come and repair the holes in our wall if you're building a house lord i just want to say come and repair the holes in our wall in jesus mighty name amen and amen